Hello, this is Barbarians at the Gate, a semi-serious deep dive into Chinese culture and Chinese history. I'm Jeremiah Jenny. I'm a writer, educator, and historian based in Beijing. Subbing in for James today is author and journalist Alec Ash, author of the recently published Wish Lanterns, Young Lives in New China, which follows the lives of six young Chinese born between 1985 and 1990. How are you today, Alec? I'm very well, and thank you, Jeremiah, for inviting this barbarian inside your gate. One of the things we'd like to look at is not just the youth culture in China today, which you've, which you've written about, but also take a look back a little bit, where young people have played an important or pivotal role in China's development and history. And there's three eras that, that come to mind immediately. Uh, the first is the new culture in May 4th era, the beginning of the 20th century, and then in the 1960s, in fact, 50 years ago this summer, the Cultural Revolution. And then finally, of course, in the 1980s, the opening and reform era, the decade in which many of the subjects of your book were in fact born. So let's take a look at these eras and see if there's some connection between you know, what was going on in these three different periods of the 20th century. And then let's take a look and see if there's some common things or common threads that come down to the present day. Going back to the, the beginning of the 20th century, and this new culture in May 4th era that lasts roughly from you know, 1916 to 1919, or at least these years, kind of bookended by the death of Yuan Shikai and the demise of the Republican experiment in China, and then of the May 4th demonstrations of 1919. What were young people then concerned about? Right, so as you say, Jeremiah, over the last hundred years of China's history, there's been a very strong connection between and legacy of youth and rebellion. That's not something which is unique to China, we can't say that China has a monopoly on angry young people fermenting rebellion, but it's certainly been a very important factor, and you can see a lot of threads connected between these three periods we'll be looking at in terms of youth and youth and politics. And most people do take May 4th, 1919, as the origin point of this, the genesis. Of course, it's not the first instance of a youth movement of its kind. In 1895, at the end of the First Sino-Japanese War, there was another student protest, decrying China's uh, poor military performance. But May 4th is really the start of a new era of youth and politics. Um, that's because China was in this new era. It had come out of the Qing dynasty only to feel eight years later that it had lost its way somehow, that the rebellion, the re revolution that overturned the dynastial empire had been lost. And I think that was very keenly felt among young people, and especially elite students. This is something we'll see also in the Cultural Revolution and, of course, in the 1980s. On that day, May 4, 1919, about 3,000 of these students from 13 different colleges in Beijing, including Peking University, they marched to Tiananmen Square. They were protesting the terms of the Versailles Treaty at the end of the First World War, which ceded German concessions in China to Japan rather than giving them back to China. So this was a nationalist movement. Yet the young students were very unhappy about this. They protested, they held up signs, and when that seemed too tame in the afternoon, they went to the house of a minister of the Republic government, Cao Rulin, on Hatamen Street, and they trashed his house and looted it. So it was quite a violent movement, but the thought behind it was that we're standing up for China and that uh, we're going to reconceive this new China, have it be stronger and stand more firmly on its own two feet. So it was a very patriotic movement. Yeah, we take a look at this era, you know, it again, culminates in these demonstrations on May 4th, 1919. One of the first thing that strikes me is the existential crisis that's going on at the time, that students or students, scholars have long 
taking it upon their shoulders to be the conscience or driving spirit of political change or, or politics in China. And this was just generation was taking up that mantle themselves. On the other hand, they were facing a situation that I think would have been very unfamiliar to scholars uh, centuries past, perhaps. China had experienced threats before, but in the early 20th century with the government in collapse, with China exhibiting all the characteristics for about a decade, we think of it as a failed state. Government really only controls a little section of Beijing. There's constant changeover as people vie for power. Meanwhile, large sections of the country fall into the hands of warlords or foreign powers. This generation, this new culture generation, they're, they're in the universities, in the big cities, and they're looking around and they're thinking, you know, this may be it. This might be the end. We, we're not just the future. We may be the last generation of Chinese civilization. And that sounds really, that sounds somewhat like an exaggeration, but there was, you, you take a look at the writings of the time, and people were really feeling that way. Absolutely. So there's one student, a 29-year-old at uh, Peking University called Xu De Hung, and he wrote a poem for May 4th in which he said, that we are, quote, ferreting out traitors, we've spared no cost, we'd do anything to save China. And I think all of these movements have something in common, this common thread of trying to save China from itself often. But each qu each generation asks like, this question, like, how do we save China? And yet they come up with, in some ways, well, somewhat different answers. One of the things we see in the new culture in May 4th era that we do see a little bit later on is this, is this cultural iconoclasm, uh, you know, this idea that a turning against a traditional Chinese culture, a Chinese tradition, uh, essays attacking Confucius and Confucianism, the leading intellectual journal of the time, Xin uh, Nian or La Jeunesse, sometimes translated as New Youth, published these long essays attacking the old system. In some ways, the, the writing itself uh, was a transition from the old order because it was one of the first magazines to write in the vernacular as opposed to classical Chinese. And so with this notion, this kind of existential crisis to save China, the idea is we must look and find new ideas because clearly whatever we've been doing for the last how many thousands of years hasn't been working. So one of the most striking aspects of this to me is this kind of transition, you know, compared to earlier period when students are in universities and talking very politely about how we're going to fix the country and then we have this kind of violent demonstration. Well, I think that was a real turning point because there is this notion before May 4th, 1919, and the other years leading up to it, of searching abroad, trying to find any idea, liberalism, anarchism, socialism, utopianism, of course, Marxism, Bolshevism, but all these different ideas are floating around. Even though there was government repression at the time, there were warlords that would crack down on expression and speech and writing, but still within the halls of the universities, you had so many different competing notions flying around that it was intellectually dynamic times anywhere in the 20th century. Absolutely. So May 4th and the May 4th movement that emerged from it grabs the headlines. But as you said, it has there's this other movement going on at the same time, which I think of as its bookish elder sibling. And that's the new culture movement emerged out of the universities and particularly um, Peking University, which at that time was a squat red brick building at the uh, northeast corner of the Forbidden City. And it's out of those halls and that magazine, New Youth, that you mentioned, that we have the intellectual figures of the May 4th the New Culture movements. These are names like Chen Duxiu, who founded the Communist Party, co-founded in 1921, Zhou Taofen, Ding Ling, the writer, Lu Xun, of course. In their writings and what they're saying, as you say, they're searching for a new model of what China can be. And one of the first places which they look is abroad. It's 
out of that movement that we get the slogan adopted by the students on May 4th, which is, we don't want Mr. Confucius, we want Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. And that's a model which they borrowed from the West while still hoping to keep some Chinese characteristics. But in searching for a new conception of China and of a stronger China, it's very much, uh, it was led by the head and led by this intellectual movement in terms of generating ideas, which I, I suppose we mustn't forget is also quite a quite a, an elite movement. Yeah, I mean, I, I can geek out on the May 4th era for the New Culture era for a long time. I, I love to go to the original building of Peking University and walk the halls. I take I take a lot of student groups there. And this idea that you'd have Lu Shun and Li Da Zhao and Chen Duxiu, Li Da Zhao, who brought Bolshevism into China. He was the most foremost proponent of Bolshevism in China. Down the hall from Chen Duxiu, who's this firebrand publisher of New Youth magazine, you know, staunch you know, anti-tradition, forward-thinking, also the dean of faculty of the university. And down the hall from him, you have Hu Shur saying things like, you know, we need less talk of isms. He's looking at language reform. And it, it's just in this incredibly um, exciting environment in this one uh, campus, uh, not the least of the, the people who are influenced by this moment, of course, is Pudgy Intern, who isn't quite able to get into the university himself, but he does hang around the library a lot, and Li Dajiao uses him as a gopher and bookshelver. Of course, this is Mao Zedong. Right, Chinese Communist Party came pretty directly out of this movement itself, uh, formed by Chen Zixiu and Li Dajiao, two of the formative figures in the new cultural movement, and they set up the CCP in 1921. That Pudgy librarian's assistant, Mao Zedong, uh, if we fast forward 30 years is the one renewing the spirit. Right, we, we move forward and one of the, I think one of the shocking things of any generation is when you realize that you're no longer part of the youth and you are the generation that the youth is now attacking as out of date. I think nobody likes to think of themselves as having an expiration date, but it happens. Yeah, so in uh, Chen Duxiu's first editorial, in the first issue of New Youth in 1915, he called China's students, quote, fresh, vigorous cells inside the human body, and he exhorted them to drive out the rotten, corrupted cells of the old guard. And it always startles me how much the language of uh, coming out of the 60s and Mao's China echoes that language. But now the old guard the new guard is the old guard. And this idea of like the, the changeover, the turnover, you know, so many of the leaders in the 1960s in, in China came out of this movement directly. They were very influenced by this era. Maybe it's not immediate to a lot of people, but there are definitely some common threads here. Uh, one of them is generational. You have generational discontent in with the Cultural Revolution in particular. You're looking at China's version of the baby boom, that post-war era that, just like in the U.S. and in Europe, that generation was slightly larger other the generations before or after it. And we see effects of that throughout the world, notably in the United States and in Europe with the um, youth movement that really shook, shook societies in the 1960s. Well, this same generation is coming of age in China. But they're coming of age in a very different era than their parents or their grandparents. And there, I, there is that kind of generational discontent. Mom was a revolutionary. Dad was a revolutionary. But Lei Feng, the model hero for my generation, wants me to be a bolt in the machine. Where's my chance, like Dad, to fight the Japanese? Where's my chance, like Mom's, to uh, run the enemy lines in the Civil War? Where are, where's my opportunity to fulfill my generation's promise? Mao Zedong gave him that opportunity. He was obsessed with May 4th spirit 
during the May 4th protests, he was living in uh, Beijing Hutong near the Drampa. Rana Mitter, the historian of China, calls the Cultural Revolution a distortion of May 4th, and Mao deliberately tried to bring some of that spirit to it. So there's a very distinct parallel. And for that generation of students, especially the elite middle and high schoolers in Beijing in that first summer of 1966, they were given this free card, get out of jail card, to do what every middle and high schooler kid's dream is, which is to rebel against your teachers and, and, and sort of burn all the textbooks. So it's a bit of a gift. I totally agree. One of the things I often talk about in class, and, and you know, I'm talking to university students, is to remind them how cruel 13 and 14 year olds can be to each other under the best of possible circumstances. And now give the weight of a state campaign of political retribution to 13 and 14 year olds and see what happens. The, you're, I think Mitter is very correct, this kind of distortion of the May 4th spirit. But even so, I think you can see, you can tease out those elements, kind of cultural iconoclasm, that attack on the old. And part of this was, of course, you know, produced by the state in the campaigns against the four olds. But this notion that there was something rotten in China's old culture that must be rooted out and destroyed like cavity or rotten tooth before the healing can begin. And that is something very much that you, f you can feel comes out of that sort of May 4th generation. Yes, and I think we can't emphasize enough the irony that many of the forces and people that are rooted out are precisely those people who were saying the same thing uh, 30, 40 years ago. One of them, Ding Ling, a, a female writer of the New Cultural Movement, she was persecuted in the anti-rightist movement of 1957 and spent the next 20 years in a prison in Dongbei. Even the hero of the May 4th era, I mean, we think about Lu Xun. It's, it's kind of mean to say, but it's some truth in it. You know, one of the best career moves he ever made, kind of like Elvis is dying young. Given his acerbic nature and the kind of writings he had, which on one hand comes out of this sort of spirit of critical searching of China's tradition or critical questioning of China's tradition, one wonders how much trouble he would have gotten into had he lived to the Cultural Revolution. Certainly many of his fellow writers, even members of his family, did not fare well. But we have this generational moment where the students are rising up, period between, especially between 1966 and 1968, period of great chaos. And one of the things that comes out of this in 1968, once the government realizes that they have unleashed forces, that they are struggling very hard to control, they send in the army to quell the student uprisings and the uprisings in the city. And then, of course, there begins the campaign of sending the students down to the countryside and removing them out of the urban areas. And for some students, it's like, I am 16 years old. I've been living with my mom and dad, and I'm going to the countryside. And there, you have all these stories of people who are like, this is going to be great. This is going to be an adventure. Of course, many people found out once they got to the countryside that getting back to the city wasn't as easy as they maybe had originally believed. Right, so throughout those early years of the Cultural Revolution, the idea is that China is both tapping into the, the fuel that the young people provide and the anger that they provide, but at the same time, it's also educating them. In fact, even the Red Guards um, were seen by many people, that generation was, was seen as mm, almost taking China for granted, almost too coddled, and Mao had the idea that he engaged them to give them this sense of public service and consciousness, and that was also the rationale behind sending uh, elite uh, young students to the countryside to be re-educated by their peasant equivalents. 
So it's a, a period of China's history which was very much galvanized, again, by forces of, uh, of, of youth, but in this case, I think, instigated really by, uh, by Mao and by the party rather than emerging naturally. Would you agree? What, what I tend to see when I look at this era, there is a lot of discontent. There is that generational swell of uh, wanting something, wanting to do something, want to break out, wanting to express their own true selves. Uh, this, I guess, is not, this is a, in some ways a universal urge. But there is certainly, because there were so many people in this generational cohort, and there was already a lot of underlying tension, it didn't take much to unleash it. And you know, this idea that Chairman Mao or, and, and people around him were quite savvy uh, in supporting uh, certain moments or certain movements and saying things in such a way that could be interpreted as giving um, their support uh, for actions taken by young people uh, is really what, if you will, popped the cork um, on a lot of the, the chaos of the Cultural Revolution. I absolutely agree. I think you're right. And I think that throughout this century that we're looking at, youth dissatisfaction and discontent has always been there bubbling under the surface. It's not that it ebbs and flows and pops up. It's always there. Sometimes it rises to the surface. And in this case, I think it was there. And it's more a matter of it being co-opted by the party, co-opted by Mao, at least initially. It continues to bubble. It continues to be there under the surface. And then we see it pop up again after the Cultural Revolution ends in 1976 with the April 5th protest. It's in, yeah, it's interesting because you have this generation, the, you know, the Red Guard generation, but by the, the end of the Cultural Revolution, by the middle of the 1970s, this, this rather deep-rooted cynicism starts to, starts to overwhelm people, especially in the years immediately following uh, the death of Chairman Mao and the arrest of the Gang of Four, but in some ways starting, as you said, in 1976. This is a, little, this is, uh, a few months before Chairman Mao died, but in April of that year, there was a large demonstration in Tiananmen Square to mourn the death of the premier, Zhou Enlai, who was generally a, a fairly beloved figure. And the attempts by the circle around Mao to limit the extent of these memorials, to limit the extent that, Joe's, that Zhou Enlai's memory was celebrated, uh, resulted in more and more people coming out in support. And eventually you had a precursor of what we saw in 1989 with the square filled with mourners for a particularly beloved departed leader. People started to join in because there was, once again, you know, that throughout this, this era, a feeling that something had to give. And so people were looking for opportunities to express this. And you had this massive demonstration that was, like in 1989, ultimately suppressed through force. Although, of course, the big difference is that a little bit later, the April 1976 demonstrations, uh, the verdict was overturned. These were demonstrations that were decided to be not necessarily against socialism, which is something we have not seen with some of the later uh, demonstrations. But then we have, uh, at the end of the Cultural Revolution, this really major turning point, of course, with the rise of Deng Xiaoping and the reform and opening era. This, once again, unleashes forces, but in a slightly different direction, and one that that harkens back to May 4th in just the enthusiasm of looking outward and looking for new ideas, this idea that China is reaching a new age. Maybe there isn't the same existential crisis we saw in the May 4th era, but a real feeling, again, to save China 
where are we going to look? Well, we're coming out of this period, a rather horrible period. We can't look back. We got to look forward. We got to look out. And this, this creates, once again, uh, its own kind of movement. As you said, it's a, I think it's a quite a direct parallel, again, like in the early 20th century, in the late 1970s, you have a fresh start, as it were. Um, we've come out of this one period, and especially in 1978 and 79, um, retroactively it was called the Beijing Spring, um, a direct reference to the Prague Spring of 68. This incorporated the democracy wall movement and the famous poster demanding the fifth modernization of democracy from uh, Wei Jingsheng. It was happening at the same time as the emergence of uh, scar literature, people talking about the Cultural Revolution being allowed to criticize the Cultural Revolution, the emergence of the misty poets, uh, Beidao, Xintian Magazine, Reader's Magazine, Dushu, things which led into, again, this cultural iconoclasm, to borrow your term, uh, that continued into the, into the, into the 80s. And that was, that was also a movement of young people, uh, young culture. Uh, Wei Jingsheng was 28 years old when he put up that poster, and he himself is a, was a former Red Guard. And I think that's that transition between the Red Guard generation and the 80s generation is something, you know, we, we kind of look at those transitional figures like a, a Wei Jingsheng. But I think also one of the things, one of the similarities between the Cultural Revolution and the 1980s is this, uh, is this kind of, who are we? What's our identity? So if the red, if the, during the Cultural Revolution it was, you know, dad's a revolutionary, I'm a bolt. In the 1980s, it was like, my older sister and my mom was a red guard. I'm majoring in accounting. The idea, like, there's got to be more than this. Where, where, what's my role in this exciting new future? And there's a lot of push um, from, s particularly from university students, but from youth in general, uh, against uh, structures that they feel are in some ways inhibiting um, this, this push forward. And you know, we see this playing out in popular culture as well through new forms of music and new kinds of literature. But even on television, the famous documentary, Heshang uh, or River Elegy, which is its central thesis was, you know, when China opens to the blue ocean, things go well. When it turns inward to the yellow desert th or the yellow uh, soil of the, the central plains, then things do not work out so well. I mean, it wasn't particularly a subtle message, but it did capture something of the zeitgeist of the age. I couldn't agree more. As we move into the 1980s, this was very much seen as a new era, um, like the new culture movement before it. And there are two direct parallels. Um, one is for looking outwards, that you said, for looking towards models from outside of China. Another is a, uh, an intense self-examining, uh, almost self-loathing at times. There's, as you said, the TV series River Elegy in 1988, um, talking about old culture still being outdated even 70 years after uh, May 4th. A few years before us in 1985 there was this uh, book-length essay by uh, Bo Yang called The Ugly Chinaman which is an indictment of China's spiritual character. Which in some ways goes back to May 4th and you think about like Lu Xun and the true story of Ah Q. Right. Uh, happening at the same time that this are some first fledgling student protests in a similar model to May 4th there was one in 1986, one in 1987, uh, uh, even before we get to the big one. Two ways this reminds me very much of the May 4th era. One, it, it does end with an event that in many ways defines the generation, which of course are the 1989 uh, student demonstrations in Beijing. But another one that 
I always think about when I look at these two eras, compare them side by side. And I've had students in my class bring this up. You know, one of the books that we read when we talk, we look at the May 4th era is Ba Jin's book, Jia, or Family, which is about a, a very well-to-do family. Of, and there's young people who are in this group, of this gen, the May 4th generation, who get caught up in this. But there's a certain, how do I put this? There's a certain element of what we used to call in college credit card hippies. These are very well-off in, and fairly privileged elite students who were looking at the troubles of the world and bemoaning them, but yet not really fully understanding or sympathizing as much as they perhaps think they do with the plight of those who aren't members of an elite student movement. And the reason I thought about this is, is the, uh, the stories that come out of the Tiananmen Square demonstrations where the student leaders often didn't want to have anything to do with the labor leaders because you know, this idea that, well, you know, they're, they're workers, they're, you know, we're, we're intellectuals, you know, this is, we don't have anything in common. So there is a little bit of that that I, I kind of wonder, an element of class in all of this, um, too, that reminds, that kind of, to me, brings these two eras together. Champagne, rebellion, I, I think um, from 1919 to 1989, it, it has been elite students who have led the, led the vanguard. It's that kind of a movement has only really transformed uh, or become something else if if the masses join as well maybe I mean even the Red Guards were, f were from Beijing's best schools to begin with and I think we also see a transition away just like we saw in 1919 there's an event that leads to a real transition away from maybe a period of intellectual dynamism and openness to a new era and in this case you know there's a sense in the 1990s transition away from these notions of Western liberalism, individualism, idealism, to a more practical reality, and there's obviously reasons for this in the post-Tiananmen age, but a more practical reality, even a sense that perhaps a turn away from idealism towards materialism, and ultimately, as we get closer, as we get you know, to the end of the century and into the 21st century, a movement more towards nationalism as opposed to the kind of cosmopolitanism that characterized uh, the, the May 4th era, the 1980s. Right, so the students who were on Tiananmen uh, in, in 89 were not only of, I think, s pretty similar background to the students of May 4, 1919, but they were also using the same language and deliberately referencing 1919. Uh, Warwick I. C., one of the student leaders, on May 4th, 1989, released what he called the new May 4th Manifesto, his mission to, quote, carry forward the May 4th spirit of science and democracy, very much referencing May 4th both in, in their student movement in the same way that, that Mao did during the uh, Cultural Revolution. Again, I, I just find the irony absolutely mind-boggling now that uh, this is a protest movement uh, using the language and referencing May 4th, but what they're, the group that they're protesting about and trying to reform is the group that came out of the protests in May 4th, 1919. And you have to think that kind of self-conscious referencing back to the May 4th movement was a direct, was a way to, to stick it to that generation. You know, Deng Xiaoping during the May 4th era, New Culture era, is this teenage kid in France who's making mimeograph copies of revolutionary leaflets under the you know, leadership of the older boys like Zhou Enlai. But I think when he does finally gaze out in the square, I don't know if he really quite sees the 1919 May 4th students. I don't think he quite sees himself 
in those students who are out there. I suspect what he does see is he looks out and sees 1966 all over again. And this idea that, well, 1919, you know, grand and glorious patriotic moment, at least that's how they're portrayed in the narrative here. You know, 1966 ended in utter disaster. One could argue that that may be part of the reason why the government was so uh, determined to use any means necessary to end demonstrations. And I think another parallel with 1919 is this idea that that moment, uh, this event, created a, a real break or a transition point that after 1989, just like after 1919, you moved away from cosmopolitanism, you moved away from this era where so many scholars were ideological omnivores into a new era. And in 1989, we see the same thing. Now, obviously, there are some, obviously there are some reasons for this. You know, the, the reality, the political reality in the post-Tiananmen age uh, did not necessarily uh, make it very easy to be either an ideological omnivore, an idealist, or you know, a, a radical cosmopolitan thinker. But we still see this transition away from 80s fascination with liberalism, idealism, um, and a certain amount of um, questioning, or very critical questioning of, of China and Chinese culture to a post-1990s emphasis on things, uh, a very realistic attitude towards politics and society, a almost materialist way of looking at the world. And when we get to the end of the 20th century, into the 21st century, you know, a new spirit of nationalism. I in many ways, this seems almost at odds with that kind of cosmopolitanism that we saw in the 1980s. Right, so this is the generation who I write about in my book, the generation born in that latter half of the 1980s and who would have been too young to remember um, that, uh, that particular China and grew up in a very different China which emerged afterwards it in, a, in an environment which in many ways was a direct result of um, the, uh, the changes in policy afterwards. Um, and it's slightly more difficult to connect the dots of May 4th and June 4th to, to this generation of young Chinese, but I do think that nationalism is one of them. Uh, I really do see May 4th and June 4th as, and the Cultural Revolution as, as nationalist movements first and foremost, and we see that in young people chucking rocks at the Japanese embassy, even if it had been funneled into that because other things were perhaps more tricky to protest about. Um, that's the same spirit, and let's not forget that May 4th was um, anti-Japan anti originally there's less political, uh, direct political activism beyond the far left, which is sort of the only sphere for it remaining, an anti-Japanese sentiment. Um, but that's not to say that the same uh, bubbling and discontent that we've talked about before, it's not to say that it isn't still there. Uh, it's just in an environment where there are, um, there are less outlets for it, as there was at that period in the late 80s and as there was in that period in the in the late tens because there is this notion inside china and from observers from outside china that the 80s generation and particularly the 90s generation is one that it seems to have very limited interest in politics and political change that they are very materialistic they are nationalistic but not necessarily in a way that shows the same kind of critical look at their own nation the way you might have seen in, at least in May 4th and in uh, the 1980s, perhaps less so during the Cultural Revolution. But there, there seems to be this idea out there. And how do you think that fits with you know, the characters or the people that you've written about in your book? Well, some of them do have zero interest in politics, and I think that's 
true, but um, I don't think it's true across the generation. And a couple of people I write about um, think about these things. I think it's hard not to be political in, in, in any country or as any young person is, and that's as true as it is in America or Europe as it is in China. I s do think that this is a very different environment that you grow up in. The, the noughties were very different to the 80s. And in many ways, the things that their forebears in the 80s were fighting for, they already have. Wurakesi famously said, when someone, when a journalist asked him, what are you fighting for? He said something like, Nike shoes and the ability to take our girlfriends out to bars and more free time and something like that. And that's exactly what people do have today. So I don't think that they've been bought off by this uh, more material comfort. And I'd push back against that and say that actually there's there's more sort of pressure than there's ever been on their shoulders. And that's a main reason why um, there's little time or interest to, to, to risk it by being political. But by and large, I, I don't think there's a, a feeling that I can really radically improve my life beyond what I can do to get a better job um, or find the right partner and, and m a more focus on the individual. I think that's sometimes slightly unfairly cast as uh, apathy and selfishness and perhaps is a little bit of the same um, spirit of sort of the older generations criticizing the kids as we've seen throughout each of the historical periods that we've uh, we've looked at it's um it's it's just a it's a just a different context right now so the title of the book is wish lanterns young lives in new china you can buy it in beijing at the bookworm or you can also download a copy off of amazon or at your local independent bookseller i really want to thank alec for coming in today uh, filling james's seat and giving us a really good perspective you know the how youth and how youth culture has changed and in some ways has remained consistent over the over the over the decades. Uh, it was terrific fun. Well, we hope to have you back very soon. Uh, this is Jeremiah. Thank you for joining us for Barbarians at the Gate. Drummers, take us out.